Thanks so much for being here today. Welcome to Means of Creation, a weekly show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and the future of work. I'm your host, Lee Jin, along with Nathan Bechez. And today I'm so excited to be having this conversation with our special guest, Cortland Allen, who is the founder of Indie Hackers, which is a website and community focused on entrepreneurs who are building profitable online businesses and side hustles. Indie Hackers describes itself as a community of individuals seeking financial independence, creative freedom, and the ability to work on their own schedule. Entrepreneurs in the community have built things like B2B tools, paid newsletters, mobile apps, and everything else in between. Cortland created Indie Hackers in August 2016 after a string of various other startup adventures, and it was acquired by Stripe just 10 months later, and he now runs Indie Hackers at Stripe along with his brother Channing. I've been really looking forward to this conversation with Cortland because I think there's a lot of shared ethos between the passion economy and indie hackers. And the common thread is really about empowering more entrepreneurship, independence, and giving people a path to financial freedom. And in particular, celebrating people who are building a comfortable living for themselves and not necessarily building a billion dollar business. So I'm really excited to explore the intersections of our ideas today. And so without further ado, Cortland, thank you so much for being here on the show with us today. Thanks, Lee and Nathan, for having me. Excited to talk. Yeah, we're, we're excited too. Amazing. So I first love to just like level set on your definition of what is an indie hacker. So in recent months and years, there's been a lot of new terms that people are using to describe Mm -hmm. like the transformation of work. There's freelancer, free agent, independent worker, creator now is on the rise, micro entrepreneur, solopreneur, et cetera. Can you just tell us how you would define an indie hacker and who that profile is? Yeah, an indie hacker is really a certain breed of a startup founder. And I think what differentiates them from the stereotypical traditional startup founder is that they're not really in it for the glory. Uh, They're not trying to scale to a billion dollar valuation. What they really prioritize is freedom above everything else. They're building their business because they want more control over how they live their lives. So they want, uh, instead of having a boss to tell them what to do, or instead of having investors to set their goals, they want to set their own goals. They want to work under their own creative direction. They want to be able to set their own schedule and work whatever hours of the day or whatever months of the year they want to work and take the rest of the time off. They want to be able to do things that might not be the most expedient in terms of generating revenue, but they don't care because it's what they want to do. They want to work from whatever location they want to in the world. They want to work with whatever people they want to work with in the world. And so indie hackers are people who are starting businesses because they understand the power of a company to change how they live their own life. Yeah. And I think that's actually a contrarian segment of the population to support, especially in Silicon Valley, where we glorify people who are building unicorns. And if it's worth less than a billion dollars, it was a (laughs) trivial outcome. I'm curious, like what led you to focus on this segment of the population? And also, since you started working on indie hackers, do you think it's become more acceptable or like people's desires have shifted palpably to trying to just build a sustainable business rather than going for a complete moonshot. Yeah. It's interesting because I think it's not new. I think people have always wanted to have great lifestyles. People have always chosen their jobs and their professions and even started businesses because they think about how is my life going to change if I do this? What is a little bit new is just being upfront and open especially in the startup community, about why you're doing things. If you look at why people come to Silicon Valley, it's often 
uh, these sort of like platitudes, like I'm going to change the world. And then you're building like a dog walking app. But is that really your passion? <laughs> or is there something else that's going unset here that's driving you? Like maybe you want to become famous. Maybe you want a lot of status. Maybe you want the respect of your peers. Maybe you want to get rich. Maybe you just want to feel successful. And maybe you really do want to change the world and have an impact. But I think a lot of that for whatever reason is just taboo. And so with indie hackers, it's not like I've discovered any sort of new thing that people suddenly want or some changing trend. It's, it's more so that a lot of people have always wanted this and started businesses for this reason. And I myself was an inspiring, aspiring indie hacker before I started the community. I don't think it's really like that different. I don't think the idea that people should do this is any different. I do think what's changed a lot in the last five to 10 years is that it's become much easier and much more possible to do this. Just the number mm. of tools that like, empower creators and developers and even non-developers to build things online. Uh, the number of platforms to build an audience has, has massively increased. The amount of information and people sharing transparently, here's my story, here's how much money I'm making, here's how I did it, has skyrocketed in the last 10 years. And just the amount of like resources you can lean on to do it is just completely unimaginable or would have been to me 10 years ago. And so now I think we have to see like a lot more people actually doing this because suddenly it's clearly easier and more possible than it was in the past. And I think can't even imagine what the world's going to be like 10, 20 years from now when almost everybody's going to be doing this kind of stuff. Totally. I have a theory that I'm curious your take on it about the, mm -hmm. the sort of gap between the narrative of being a unicorn where it's like very mission driven and everyone has to have this really compelling story versus like maybe a bigger part of the reality is just they do want the same things that indie hackers want, which is like freedom, control, status, yeah, whatever, like whatever, all those things. It seems like a big part of the reason to have those narratives is to attract employees and indie mm. hackers are like maybe less focused on getting employed. Like they may hire, but like somewhat reluctantly and they don't probably need to hire that much. And maybe they're okay with their business not being overall as big if the revenue per employee is like really big. Right. I'm curious if you think that's part of the difference in like narrative. Yeah, I haven't even thought of that before. It's, it's really interesting because I, I do think the idea that we have a shared mission and we're trying to make an impact on the world really resonates with employees. What else resonates with employees? Like money. <laughs> hey, you're going to have a totally. piece of equity in this really fast growing startup. And it's one path to wealth that I think motivates a lot of people who are joining a lot of early stage startups. And that also doesn't just doesn't get talked about quite enough. If I look at what convinced me when I first moved to Silicon Valley to try to do a high growth startup, because I went through YC in 2011, I was in that cohort. Uh, a lot of it was just like the stories that I saw in the press. Most of the stories that the tech press promotes are stories of these giant consumer-facing startups that have all raised a ton of money. I remember in 2011, I think it was, or 2010, the social network came out. And like that inspired so many people to move to Silicon Valley and start startups. And of course, like the story of Facebook was heavily involved in fundraising and going for like a unicorn valuation and beyond. I think a lot of the people the press talked to are people like you two, who are writers and investors and who are very heavily connected in that kind of community. I think a lot of the most vocal people on Twitter are investors. And so a lot of the narratives on how to do this stuff, people write, who have the time to actually write about how to do this stuff, are just more focused on that particular path to starting a tech company. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who've been starting like these bootstrapped and profitable businesses for decades just haven't had a platform. You've really had to dig to go find their stories. And if you didn't find them, like, where are you going to be inspired to even do this? Like, how could you even know that it was possible to build a tech business without raising money if you didn't, you know, get lucky and know somebody or happen to look at the right comment on Hacker News on the right day in the right place and time? So uh, I think that's another thing that's changing. There's just a lot more places that are broadcasting stories of successful creators and indie hackers who are making it without really raising money, without asking anybody for permission, just through their own sort of ingenuity. And that ends up creating this almost virtuous cycle of inspiration where more people are inspired because they see these stories. So they start creating things and then their stories get out there because they're sharing and then more people see those, et cetera.
Totally. It's such a powerful feedback loop. I think that's the exact same feedback loop that drives like Substack, YouTube, Patreon. It's you can do this. It's a good model. And then like it happens <laughs> and then they actually do it. And then they inspire the next wave. And it's a viral growth uh, mechanism. Exactly. It's like a little bit slow, but super powerful. Yeah. I feel like there has been a shift in what is held up as the example that people should aspire to. I feel like a lot of the flame outs of a lot of the big, super large venture backed companies that had raised a ton of capital in the past few years, led people to believe and to want to build more sustainable businesses that were profitable from the early days. So I definitely feel, at least from my investor perspective, that there is increasing emphasis on having a viable business model from the get-go, not just gunning for being super highly valued. Like there was this, I remember this episode of Silicon Valley a few years ago where that crazy billionaire investor, Russ Hanneman, was trying to dissuade the Pied Piper guys not to earn revenue. And everyone was super confused. Isn't the point of a business to make money? And he was like, no, like it's not about how much you make. It's about how much you're worth. And I think it was a joke at the time, but a lot of people did think that. And I think it's finally shifting after people have realized yeah. like what you're worth is it, it, it does tie back to business fundamentals at a certain yeah. point and there will be a reckoning if you consistently lose money. But I also want to dig into one of the things that you had said earlier, which is just how around like how it's gotten easier for people to start these profitable businesses now easier than it was before. And I want to dig into that because I feel in some ways, major tech platforms and tools have made it easier to start independent businesses. Mm -hmm. But in some other ways, they've also made it harder. So for instance, Facebook advertising is now more expensive. There's been a huge explosion of D2C brands empowered by Shopify and other tools that have started to sell online and all competing for the same consumer dollars and consumer attention. There's Apple has always charged a 30% commission rate on in-app purchases until the recent news this past week about lowering that for small businesses. And people have theorized that like basically precludes a lot of other types of businesses from existing who aren't able to support that 30% take rate. And so I'm curious around your thoughts on like, in what ways has it become easier? And in what ways has it become harder as a result of new platforms and tools to start one of these indie businesses? Yeah, I think It's an interesting point because both of those forces are happening at the same time. It's simultaneously becoming easier in some ways and harder in some ways. And I think a lot of the indie hackers and founders who are succeeding are just leveraging the ways it's becoming easier and avoiding the more difficult scenarios. So you've got a lot of like winner take all platforms that, you know, build these huge moats because they have network effects or because they have, in some cases, monopolies. Like I would argue YouTube is a monopoly. It's probably not smart to create a service that competes with YouTube or that tries to compete with the app store. But vice versa, like you've got all this increased competition, more people starting businesses than ever, which seems like it would be a disadvantage, but in point of fact, actually turns out to be advantageous because usually the best customers to sell any sort of product or service to are other businesses that are trying to make money. So when I look at indie hackers who are actually doing really well, most of them, instead of being afraid of the competition, are just providing tools to sell into the competition. They're using each other's website builders. They're using each other's blogging tools and platforms. They're reading each other's newsletters and taking each other's courses. And so I see a lot of indie hackers and early stage founders selling to other early stage founders in the same way that 
you might see bigger companies doing the same thing, right? Google's buying a lot of MacBooks from Apple and App- Apple's paying Facebook for advertising. And it, it, at first, at first guess, like at first glance, looks like it might be unsustainable. Okay, can we really have this giant circular network of everybody just buying each other's products? But like ultimately, most businesses sell to other businesses. And so like the increased competition really is an advantage. And I think that goes alongside of all the other things that I mentioned earlier, where again, just the amount of information is absolutely insane. When I was like first starting companies in 2010, it was, you had to go to YC, you had to hear people get up in front of you and like, talk about what the early days were like at their companies. And like, you're part of this like insider network where you got to see like how the, how the sausage was made, so to speak. And now it's, you can't go on Twitter without seeing somebody broadcasting loudly, like their story, how they were able to do what they do. And it's just super helpful. It's just the entire premise behind any hackers, to be honest, is I didn't know how to start one of these bootstrap businesses. And so I started interviewing people who did and sharing their interviews. And every one of them will say, here's how much money I'm making. Here's how I came up with my idea. Here's like the challenges that I overcame. Here's how I worked on the side of my job, et cetera. And so if you want to find out this information, you could just go find it online and it makes it like a thousand times easier than trying to start without this info. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of the scale of indie hackers today in terms of how many people are in the community, how many people are visiting it, et cetera? So we've got about 200,000 uniques a month. Community is about 140,000 registered accounts. We get about a thousand comments a day, about 200 posts and discussions a day. To my knowledge, it's the biggest explicit online community for startup founders. You could argue that Twitter has a, a, a better community for startup founders, but it's almost like saying California is the best community for startup founders. It's not explicitly for <laughs> right. uh, founders. Uh, There's a lot of other stuff going on there. Exactly. So Andy Hackers is like pretty. It's become pretty substantial. I created, for example, like a directory of products a couple years ago. And I just sat and forget it and was like, oh, upload your product here and post milestones about your progress. And I don't think I've even pushed an update to it in like almost two years, but I checked the other day and it's now grown to 12,000 products. And like most of them have people sharing their revenue numbers and the exact steps they took to get to where they are today. So it's become a pretty substantial resource for people who are actually operators, people who actually want to build companies and aren't just there to read stories, but are thinking about doing this themselves and who are asking each other questions and forming partnerships, finding co-founders, et cetera. I love this idea that it's a good thing and it won't hurt your business if you share in a really detailed way exactly how you did, how you created your business. It feels like there's still, we've had this cultural movement against NDAs or whatever, and but there's still a lot of, I think, un- unwarranted fear around mm-hmm. secrecy around a lot of topics. Certainly it's possible for some businesses to have certain things that are like secret sauce or whatever, but like the vast majority of things that a business does are not really like secret sauce. And they'd probably, they'd probably be fine if they were, if they were out like sharing exactly how they made a certain thing work, especially if it's like something that happened six months ago or whatever. And it was like some, something you were doing that you've pretty much got a handle on now. And it would like be difficult for someone else to catch up or whatever. It's anyway, I'm curious if you have noticed a shift. And because the transparency also on indie hackers, people directly connect their Stripe. I'm curious, like, why this, why do you think this community is like the main hotspot for increased transparency in the business world? Because there's like the most increased transparency there. And then I think the broader startup community is probably a little bit more transparent than a lot of other places. And then the broader business world is a lot more opaque, usually. I think there is a kind of a a monkey see, monkey do effect. When you see people succeeding and you see what they're doing to get ahead. Uh, you suddenly start thinking about how you could do the same thing and succeed. So when I first started Indie Hackers, 
like there was some transparency, but there wasn't a ton. For example, I see Vincent Wu in the uh, the chat right now. He was one of the first people I reached out to, and I remember asking him, "Hey, Vincent, how much money are you making with CoderPad? Do you want to share your uh, revenue numbers?" And he was like, "Absolutely not. <laughs> Why would I do that? Doesn't make any sense." But since then, he's come on the podcast twice and shared, you know, how many millions of dollars CoderPad was making, etc. And I think there's just countless examples of companies who had trouble getting traction early on, had trouble marketing, yeah. had trouble inspiring people and reaching customers. And then when they went transparent and shared their revenue numbers, suddenly people paid attention because you couldn't find information like that anywhere else online. And that really helped them stand out. I think in addition to that, there's almost uh, this sort of underlying effect that like maybe people aren't doing consciously, but I think the platforms that allow people to share their stories transparently have an edge because it's very inspiring and people will copy them. So if you think about Substack, Substack not only empowers you to write a newsletter and make a lot of money, but people who have Substacks that are successful have a habit of going on Twitter and saying, look how much money I'm making. I'm you know, making more with my newsletter than I was making at my job at Airbnb as a marketer or whatever. And when people see those stories, they immediately think, oh, the Substack thing seems cool. And they go end up using that platform. And that, like, those types of transparent platforms tend to be the ones that win. And so overall, like I would expect to see platforms that encourage people to share transparently, especially success positive success stories will be the ones that get the most attention and the most excitement among potential users. I have a really high level question for you. So I've seen numerous surveys run on like the US population suggesting mm -hmm. that starting one's own business is an aspiration for a lot of the population. I think there's measures of what they call latent entrepreneurialism, like people who want to be an entrepreneur, people who want to be self-employed, and that's, it's super high. It's 70, 80% of the population would rather be self-employed instead of being an employee. And that rate, however, remains pretty consistent over time, meaning right. that it remains an aspiration. It doesn't actually get put into action. People are still employed. They don't make the leap and become self-employed. Yep. I want to turn that over to you and ask you, like, how do you think we encourage more people to start businesses in America? And what is the role that startups in Silicon Valley plays in that versus initiatives from the world of public policy or education? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. There's this model for behavior that comes from BJ Fogg, who's a researcher at Stanford. And I think it's like behavior equals MAT. So it's motivation times ability times trigger. And if you want someone to take action, then you need to, number one, motivate them, give them a reason to take action. Number two, give them the ability to take action because people aren't dumb. They're not going to spend a lot of time on things they have no chance of succeeding at. And they need some sort of like prompt or some sort of trigger to get them started. And I don't think you can do a lot of this through policy. I think you need to do a lot of this through technology, through storytelling, and then just through increasing people's abilities. So if you look at something like Andy Hackers, for example, the motivation comes from the stories. I've done 180 interviews on the podcast. We've interviewed like 500 people on the website. Plus, if you go to the forum, every single day, there's people posting milestones about like how they just launched or how they just got their first customer, et cetera. And when you see somebody accomplishing something really great, when you see a YouTuber getting millions of subscribers and changing their life, like you're, that gives you the motivation. Okay, maybe I should do this. Then like the sort of storytelling and the instructional guides, all the, like the courses we see in communities and educational resources of how people do things, give people the confidence in their abilities, especially if they can see a motivational story of somebody who looks like them and comes from a similar background and yet was able to figure things out. I think it really boosts people's confidence. Oh, you know what? Maybe I can be a popular creator on YouTube, or maybe I can be a seller on Shopify, or I can be my own founder and start my own company. So I think that gives people the ability. And then the trigger is just like the first step. All right. Like how do I actually get started? And for a lot of these creator economy platforms, they make it easy. Sign up for Substack. Here's literally like an onboarding flow to get started. Sign up for YouTube, et cetera. 
with ND hackers in particular, it's a little bit more vague because ND hackers have, I think, a healthy skepticism of building on top of a platform. They don't really want to be locked into a platform, even if it provides a lot of advantages. And so they're more about charting their own course and finding their own distribution platforms without necessarily having their hands held the entire way. But we try to do a lot there. We've got like a good start here page that shows you the first steps you can take. Yeah. And every single time I interview anyone, I ask them about the early days and how they actually got started. So listeners don't end up just trying to copy the things that a late stage company does, but they can see what it's like and how it's different when you're first taking your first steps. Totally. One, one platform that indie hackers love and aren't afraid of being locked into, uh, it seems at least, is Stripe, uh, <laughs> which is maybe a good segue to talk about indie hackers and Stripe. Yeah. I'm curious, were you, did you approach them? Did they approach you? Were you like surprised or if they approached you? I'm curious because when I first heard about it, I was like, I never would have guessed, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had no ambitions to sell indie hackers at all. Indie hackers was my own sort of indie hacker project. And so... I started it in July 2016. It took about three weeks to go from idea to launch. And from there, it was like a blog for a couple months and a newsletter. And then it turned into a community and it turned into a podcast. And I was monetizing through sponsorships and advertising. And I had this whole list of like my dream sponsors going from like the easiest to the hardest and like the best. And Stripe was at the very bottom of the list where I was like, okay, I need to like really hone my sales skills before I like email anyone at Stripe because I really want them to be a sponsor. And I think I was maybe like a third of the way through my list when I got an email from Patrick at Stripe, who just straight up asked me over email, hey, can we buy Andy Hackers? I think we could de-risk the project. We have similar goals, et cetera. And we met and it turned out that our goals are like perfectly aligned. Stripe just wants to increase the GDP of the internet. It's very beneficial to Stripe if more people start companies and more of those companies are successful. And that's like clearly the mission of Andy Hackers and me sharing all these different stories. And I also really like the idea that I would no longer have to send cold emails and try to sell ads to lots of people to finance the, the website. I think in a way, like Indie Hackers is a platform that, that creates a lot of value, but doesn't capture a lot of value. Like I don't charge for anything at Indie Hackers. I'm not like trying to make money off of the users. Uh, I'm just trying to inspire people to start. And many tens of thousands of people have started companies because of some story they read or someone they connected with on Indie Hackers, but like, I don't get any revenue from that. However, Stripe is a great machine for capturing that value because ideally, if you start a company, you're going to choose like the best payment infrastructure possible. And for a lot of people, the answer to that is Stripe. And so there isn't like any sort of direct connection between ND hackers and Stripe where we're like constantly trying to funnel users from one to the other. It just naturally happens. Yeah, I think it's a really confident approach from Stripe to not like plaster their logo and call to actions all over indie hackers because it's they know that a lot of people are just naturally going to choose stripe and that if more people actually just got the sort of like over the hump of wanting to actually get started that would naturally lead to more revenue for them which is pretty yeah it's like a pretty cool way to do it if you ask me and it goes back to your, your question earlier about lee about like 70 percent of americans wanting to start their own business but they just haven't yet there's so much untapped potential and i love like all these creator economy platforms that essentially as i see it are doing nothing but other than just making it easier for people to start businesses. And if you know, I was sitting where Patrick is sitting at Stripe trying to <laughs> grow Stripe as a company, I would be investing money into everything possible that will get people to start more companies. Yeah, I really like that framework that you outlined, the MAT framework of motivations, abilities, and trigger. I think there is a missing component there, though, which is like environment mm -hmm. or 
yeah, I guess it's an environment. It's like the setting and in which and the society and your personal situation, your financial situation, all totally. of the environmental factors that make it easier or harder for you to start a business. Mm-hmm. I've had founders internationally tell me that it's easier to get people to quit their jobs and to become a creator in a country like Spain, where they have universal health care, than to make that ask of someone in the U.S. Totally, where that doesn't where that doesn't exist. And we were having this debate a couple of weeks ago with Taylor Lorenz on the show as well regarding these creator platforms and whether people are making the leap into being a creator from a place of comfort or from a place of necessity, whether they're doing it because they need the money and this is like a form of subsistence entrepreneurship or whether it's a passion, a hobby, a side hustle that they decide that they love and want to devote their full-time attention to. And I'm curious among the indie hacker community, do you see... Do you feel like most people are coming from a place of comfort and choice in becoming an indie hacker? Or do you think it's more emblematic of a sort of financial need triggering their decision to want to build this type of business? I think there's a high correlation between how difficult it is to succeed on a particular channel and also how much creativity you can express. Mm. and how much people are choosing to do that of their own volition. So if you look at something like Uber or Instacart, like if you sign up for a driver, uh, to be an Uber driver, you're not doing it because you really want to express yourself creatively. Uh, You're not doing it because it seems like a fun challenge. You're doing it because like they make it as easy as possible and it's just a reliable fallback. Whereas if you compare to the opposite extreme, like deciding to start a startup, like very few people are like financially pressured into starting a startup. It's extremely hard. It is far from the easiest way to make a quick buck. But the rewards in terms of like your lifestyle are very high. And so it's very alluring. And so people do it because, quite frankly, they are willing to take the risks and endure the hardships because the promise is so high. And so I think in the long run, like these kind of platforms are going to win out. It's just more fun to be a, like a YouTuber or an indie hacker than it is to be an Uber driver for a lot of people. But again, it comes down to this ability part of things that you just mentioned, which is well, if you don't have enough money to do that, if you don't have financial security, then you don't have the ability to start a company. And so I think that you're completely right. Like maybe that's an area where public policy can come into play and increase people's ability. And that's also an area where I think fundraising can come into play too. Like when I first started Indie Hackers, there was a lot of bootstrapper pride. People were very explicitly proud to never raise money and they really didn't like VCs because VCs didn't care about anybody who wasn't going for a unicorn valuation. Whereas recently there's all sorts of alternative fundraising options. There's ClearBank, there's NDVC, there's TinySeed and Earnest Capital and FounderPath and like a million different fundraising options that will fund people who previously seemed unfundable. And that gives people the, the ability to start companies that I think quite frankly, they, like they couldn't have started earlier. And there are also yeah. a lot of founders who are just writing about like clever different ways to start companies and despite having very limited resources. Like there's a guy, Jordan O'Connor, who had a full-time job and kids and a wife and like a bunch of stuff going on in his life and he was able to bootstrap his company to like 20, 30 grand a month in revenue. And he's written extensively about how he was able to do that and the tools he used to give himself leverage. And so I think that's also giving people more ability. Yeah, I think the fundraising piece is really interesting. I would love to see new models of financing that align better to this 
creation of an indie hacker type of business rather than just to the venture scale or bust type of model. Because there's so many classes of businesses that are probably never going to scale to hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, but they can still be successful, sizable businesses that provide a good return for investors. And they require some amount of upfront investment and risk. For instance, starting a podcast or starting a YouTube channel requires some investment and time and energy. And yeah, I think there's like a shortage of options for creators who are building businesses like that. And I see a lot of them trying to pitch VC, but it doesn't, it's not quite the right fit for that. So there almost needs to be like a, a new type of financing for independent business creators who are just trying to build profitable businesses from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah. It is. People are experimenting with this. It remains to be seen how successful they'll be. But as a founder, you don't, it doesn't really matter to you. You can just take advantage of the experiments and apply to something like Tiny Seed. They've got like an online sort of accelerator for bootstrappers and they don't need, they don't need you to have a unicorn like story. Like one of my friends, Lentai started a company. She was doing a decent amount of revenue and she got into YC. And I think like during her YC interview, it was all about, okay, how are you going to make this big, et cetera. But sometime during the batch, she realized like she just didn't care about making it big. She didn't want to hire a bunch of employees. She wanted to chill. And she was able to grow her revenue to something like 400K a year, working like 10 hours a week as a solo founder with no employees. And to most people on like Earth, like that's a very inspiring <laughs> yeah. outcome. Like, that's, like, that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's, that's fine. That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, and they don't necessarily good. care about raising money from investors. I like the path that people will take where they, they find out how they can build these businesses without needing a ton of upfront investment. Yeah. I'm curious how some of the funding stuff does work because it seems like there's almost a much lower bar if you tell a really big story for raising early money mm-hmm. than there is if you're telling like a smaller story, which maybe makes sense because I guess if it's a smaller story, then it needs a higher probability of working or something like that for it to be interesting as an investment. But a lot of the stuff that I've seen, you reference ClearBank and NDVC, they're designed for you've got cash flow already and like we could help whatever, like you, you, we, we could help a little bit, but it's not really solving the like, how do people get from A to B kind of problem. Right. And I think a lot of people can get from A to B without raising any money, especially building software. If you're a programmer and you see a need, you could just build it on the weekends and you should be able to get to the point where you can generate some cash flow if it's like a real problem. Mm-hmm. But I think there are other kinds of businesses that like, like even starting a YouTuber podcast channel or something like that, it really requires tons of upfront work. Like I think yep. a lot more than you could just do on a weekend if you want to create content like every day or, some, or something like that. Sure. Like, and I'm, and I'm curious if you see any other funding models in the software world that could be applied more broadly that would work for that kind of earlier stage moment. Yeah, I think there are some like ClearBank, for example, some of the others are like revenue share type mm. models or you're right, like they want you to have revenue and you plug it into their sort of calculator and they figure out how much they can like... Re- reliably like loan you basically mm-hmm. something like tiny seed is not really a revenue share like they've invested in companies that quite frankly are pre-revenue or just at the idea phase but their model as investors is they just need a very high number of hits and so right. they're taking their knowledge and they're saying okay we know how to build a SaaS company we have got a lot of portfolio companies that have done it we can help you grow if we think you found a promising market and you're t- like talented founders you don't need revenue and yeah we're not going for these like unicorn grand slams but we can get a base hit if you can grow your revenue to five ten million dollars a year and so I don't think you necessarily like people are experimenting with a lot of this kind of stuff. And I'm not the most well versed in it. I get a lot of pitches yeah. to come on the podcast about their new, you know, fundraising model as investors. Uh, and I don't know what's going to win. I can't, you know, presume to know what's going to work in the long run. But I think as a founder, you certainly can take advantage of it. And in particular, the indie hackers I see who are the most successful are the ones who don't feel like they need to. They're the ones yeah. who are the most talented, I think, at realizing that you can start very small and 
once you achieve some level of traction or success in a very small pond, you can use that, leverage that to go to a bigger pond. So um, with my own story, for example, with Andy Hackers, it was a blog for about like a month before it became like a newsletter. And I used that to become a community. And then I met Patrick at Stripe, who was like, oh, you're getting a thousand uniques a day. Like, why don't you shoot for 300,000 uniques a day, which is a level of ambition like I just didn't have. I didn't attempt to do it. But like now I'm like, okay, I've got to start a course to get there. And you don't need a ton of money to do that. You just need to go slowly and figure out how you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and grow your business. So uh, a lot of the indie hackers who are very successful are, are just starting super small. Maybe they're tweeting and building an audience on Twitter and then channeling that to grow a newsletter. There are a ton of indie hackers like running profitable newsletter businesses today that are making 20, 30 grand a month that this time last year, they didn't even have a newsletter. Yep. Uh, yeah. I think two two interesting experiments that I'll also add to that is one is PodFund, which is like a podcast investment vehicle that is mm -hmm. funding emerging podcasters. I think they give them a small amount of initial capital in exchange for some equity investment plus a rev share. Don't quote me on that though. You should probably look it up and, and find out the details, but I think it's something like that. Acknowledging that podcasts can be scaled to pretty sizable businesses, but are never going to be venture scale. Yep. And then secondly, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the crypto world with social tokens and creator tokens and giving the audience the ability to fund a creator and to be right. financially compensated for taking on that risk initially. So Very I think- cool. Those are interesting new emerging financing classes for this type of business. I also want to return to something that you had mentioned earlier in the conversation around how Indie Hackers gives out more value than it takes for itself. And so spe specifically, I think recently there's been a rise in community-first companies or community-enabled companies or there's even just like community companies where community is the core product. And we had this conversation with Greg Eisenberg early on in the show where he predicted that many more community focused companies would arise and all of the sub anything that was like vi a vibrant community on Reddit or any large horizontal social platform could potentially be a standalone community company. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get your thoughts on that and specifically like whether you think community first or community enabled companies can be scaled to become huge businesses and whether when you were starting Indie Hackers, it felt like there was a tension between monetization mm -hmm. and building a business from Indie Hackers versus growing a high quality community. Yeah, that's a great question. The tension is particularly interesting. For Indie Hackers, I think it was obvious to me right off the bat that like I could build a really big audience which is subtly different than a community. If you use like a real world analog, an audience is like you can imagine someone on a stage speaking to a bunch of people who are all just watching that person. Whereas a community is there is no stage ever. Like the value comes from people interacting with each other. And so for the longest time, Indie Hackers was not really a community. It was just an audience where I would bring on founders and interview them and people would just read and listen to that kind of stuff. And for building an audience, like one of the only ways you can really monetize is like ads, sponsorships, like you can potentially sell stuff, but you want your audience to be as big as possible. And so there is a tension to pay gating your community or your audience and charging people to join and monetizing that way because fewer people will join. And so for me, like I kept it free and I charged for advertising. What I'm seeing now are a lot of smaller communities that are actually just charging for membership, which I think is like really good or for ancillary things like events, merchandise, et cetera. So for example, my community manager for Indie Hackers, her name is Rosie Sherry. She had her own community before she joined Indie Hackers. In fact, I interviewed her because her community was generating like a million dollars a year in revenue. And it was a community called Ministry of Testing for Software Testers. And she monetized through like in-person events. She's, like now it's 
I think switched to online events. They just sold like a thousand tickets to their first online event for 50 bucks. So they're still doing well. But what I like to see from that model is people monetizing in ways that like increase the connection between their community members. Since like people are part of these communities because they like interacting with other people, I like the idea of charging them to basically get more of that connection, which in her situation was in-person events. So you like these other software testers, why don't you come meet them and talk to them in person? Uh, why don't you come join a webinar with the rest of them? And, and I think that works very well. Forgetting the first part of your question. No, that was basically it. Yeah. I, I think the question of like how to build a business from a community is mm. a really interesting one. In some ways, I feel like, yeah, I, I also believe that I think charging just a membership fee, I, I think a lot of times that doesn't work because the community benefits from network effects and it becomes better as more people are able to join and you don't want to make it super exclusionary. And the membership model is counter to that. And yeah, I, I think a lot of people are wondering what is the right monetization model for a community and they're charging for some other product like a course, a cohort-based right. course and education or a product and merchandise. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what arises from that. Yeah, I mean, I would differentiate between how to monetize your audience and how to monetize your community. Because when I think about charging for a course or something, I think that most often when I see that, people are monetizing their audience. They've right. built a really big following on Twitter and it's not really a community. Like your followers aren't <laughs> talking to each other and you're trying to figure out as like the person on stage, okay, how do I get these people to buy something, et cetera, versus some of the communities that I've been a part of personally that I've paid money for, they're a community from the get-go. What I'm paying is for is like that deeper connection with other people in the community. For example, there's MicroConf, which is a community of bootstrap founders. They also monetize through events. So people would pay hundreds of dollars to go to Vegas every year. And yeah, there were people, there was an audience mechanic where you would go watch people give a talk on the stage, but the community would really happen in the hallway in between the talks where you got to make a lot of friends and talk to other founders. And it's very sticky because you want to go back every single year and talk to these people you've made friends with. And that's what you're actually paying for. So I'm not like, a, tremendously against actually charging money for membership. And I think counterintuitively, sometimes that makes the community higher quality. For example, Sam Parr from The Hustle has built a huge audience, the 2 million subscribers to his mailing list. And now he started a kind of a new product called Trends that has a Facebook community as a part of it. And because you have to pay to get into that community, it's actually higher quality. Like the posts there are all from people who are actually building real businesses. Or another example would be Peter Levels, who runs Nomad List, which is a community of digital nomads. And like he made his community free up front. And then there's just like a bunch of spam and a bunch of people who weren't serious about traveling. And then he added a fee. And not only did that help him monetize his community, but the community actually became much better and more deeply connected because these are people who are serious about being digital nomads if they're willing to actually spend money to be part of the community. So I think some of the difference comes between, are you monetizing a community or are you monetizing an audience? Someone just put on deck in the chat, which I agree with. I think that is an example of a community plus course and education experience that isn't predicated on an influencer plus audience relationship. Like people are really there for the content and for the community. And as I, was I don't know, Eric Tornberg is a pretty big influencer, <laughs> so we shouldn't diss him like that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Eric. I didn't mean that as shade. I Yeah, I think in some ways like higher education institutions are like a paid community. Mm -hmm. Like people are willing to pay the ticket price for a lot of degree programs because exactly. of the network that they gain from it. Yeah, exactly. And there's other, some of these professional organizations like EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and there's, what is it like YPA, I think it's called. 
YPO. YPO, yeah. exactly, where mm, people pay yeah. like large numbers, like people pay huge membership fees just to be a part for the network. So like that to me is more like, those are solid communities. You're really paying because you wanna talk to your peers. And I think the ones that make the most money and the most successful do just charge for membership. Totally, yeah. I have a last question before we turn it over to the audience for Q&A. So this is our last episode before Thanksgiving. We're taking a break next week, guys, by the way, for Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. So I wanted to ask a little bit about gratitude and specifically, are there any experiences or experience that you've had in your life that was really tough going through it, but coming out from the other side, you are really grateful for and you think shaped you into the person you are today? Yeah, tough experiences. It's hard finding the intersection of tough experiences that like I'm grateful that they happened. <laughs> yeah. There's been like certain. So, okay, here's a hard thing that I went through as a kid. My dad passed away when I was in high school. I'm not happy that happened, but in terms of like how it shaped me as a person, I'm a much better person than I was beforehand. I think mm. I've just I was like forced to mature very quickly and accept some of the realities of the world that like it just one thing when they're theoretical and another when they're like actually happening. And I think it brought me much yeah. closer together with my brother and my mom. And I think it also set by like a bar or say, no, if I can survive this, I can survive almost anything. And everything yeah. else is like easy peasy by comparison. But I think a lot of people that I've talked to who've done like kind of cool stuff have some sort of like tough thing that happened in their childhood. They were an orphan or something. And when things get tough in other areas of their life, they're like, I survived this other much harder thing. And that's a silver lining that can make you grateful that at least you were able to survive that. Yeah, totally. I can't imagine that. That is incredibly tough. I just want to say, and thank you for sharing that because that's a deep thing. Yeah. And I can imagine, I haven't been through anything like that, but I can imagine that it would make you a lot stronger too, coming out of it. I can see. Yeah. There's so much that people go through that you have no idea that they're going through. Uh, And there's so much like when we talk about quality of opportunity and entrepreneurship or like people just come from radically different backgrounds. Like I was also very lucky growing up that I had two very loving parents, that I grew up American, that I grew up in the middle class. And that's just a huge advantage that like we don't talk about because it's invisible where everybody came from. So yeah. I'm just been free. I don't have any like sources of like massive childhood emotional trauma that are taking up like 10%, 20% of my brain space all the time. But I've met people who do and who have pushed through it. There's a founder on uh, ND Hackers the other day who is a trans woman. And she like had this great story about running her SaaS business of $40,000 a month in revenue. And she just had a lot of insecurities and a lot of like doubt and a lot of just experiences that like I've never had to go through to start a company. And there are lots of people like silently going through like lots of struggles like that. I just don't get talked about enough. I'm a huge supporter of anyone who's been through a lot of troubles. And I think often it makes you a better founder because being a founder is not easy. Totally. Absolutely. At least in my experience in the investing world, whenever we ask that question, so tell me about yourself. Mm-hmm. We want them to start early, like way early, like from birth and like everything that happened in their life. And I feel like a lot of what we're listening for is actually, have they been through real hardship? Mm. Have they demonstrated resilience and grit and ability to overcome obstacles? And I feel like, I, I think it really does impart resiliency that people who've had lives that have gone swimmingly just don't have it's a testing experience. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. Okay. So in the last eight minutes or so, we want to open it up to audience Q&A. So if you have a question, you can raise your hand or you can type it into the Q&A and we'll pick some and read them out for you. 
I'm curious while we're waiting for people to raise hands about Sachin Reki's question. Did you mention you were creating a course? Curious to hear more about that. <laughs> I did not mention that I'm creating a course, but okay. <laughs> the Indie Hackers podcast in and of itself is meant to be a good way to learn, right? The idea totally. of the whole podcast is I interview founders from a variety of sources and I ask them all about how they started and how they were successful. I think one of the things that it's hard to get as a founder is it's hard to get broad perspective. As an investor, you're talking to tons and tons of founders, you're doing a lot of research, like you just have time to think and get a broad perspective. Founders most often just think about one thing. They're operators, they're doing their one thing, they don't have time to come up for air. And I think one of the good things about being able to just listen to the Indie Hackers podcast is you just get that broad perspective. You get to see a hundred different ways that people have started their companies. You can, I recommend taking notes while you listen. You can just open up a notepad file and every time you hear something insightful, just write down, oh, this is a cool insight. And then you could do that for a couple of weeks. And when it comes time to start your own thing, you can look at your notes and say, okay, here's the notes that really appeal to me. Here's a lifestyle that appeals to me. Here are the insights that kept coming up over and over again, that these must be the most important. And go through that checklist style to help you come up with your own idea and start your own business. So it's a, a, an impromptu course, but I don't have any plans for an explicit course that I'm gonna put together and sell. Nice. Also, Cortland, do you have any questions for us? Oh yeah, we. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, you two are so smart and you're so experienced with the creator economy. Indie Hackers in and of itself is a platform for creators. It's a little different than like YouTube or Substack or any of these others, because it's not as explicit in terms of helping you generate revenue. But what would you do if you're running Indie Hackers and you had hundreds of thousands of founders who were coming to try to build a better life for themselves? I'm curious. I, I, I'm also hesitant because I don't know everything you've tried. So I always hate the, have you done this? Yeah, we did that or what, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like the thing that comes to mind for me is like just small groups, like cohorts of, of mm. people that are paired and can create a more stable thing for potentially a year or longer where they're right. really like mentoring and helping each other and getting the right mix of people where there's some people that are a little bit ahead, some people that are a little bit new, or maybe you intentionally want to do it where it's like just peers or whatever. Yeah. But I'm curious if you've done any of that and it feels pretty aligned with the mission of like totally. really getting people to actually succeed. And it's like though that kind of like someone, someone is paying attention to me and knows me and can help me and cares if things are going well or not for me and wants to help was like, yeah, it's always been so huge for me. And it's, I can imagine for a lot of people, it's really tough to find people who just can be helpful. They might have people in their lives that are generally supportive, but just don't know much about yeah. the world that they're operating in. I think that's a great idea. I think a lot about community and like the interesting thing about communities, everybody wants to build a big one, but like the best communities are usually small because communities totally. are about like these personal relationships and these personal networks. And once you get to a certain size, really more of a platform than a community. And I think you have two, two choices. You can either embrace being a platform or you can break yourself up into lots of smaller communities like you see Reddit doing. Or like even something like CrossFit, I would consider as like a collection of a bunch of different communities where like these CrossFit box owners are empowered to go create their own little communities and their own little gyms. And it's not this one big monolithic CrossFit community. So at Indie Hackers, we've tried this a little bit and the difficulty is <laughs> scaling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like for example, we've done in-person meetups, rest mm. in peace, thanks to COVID, but they'll yeah. be back. But we at some point had like 70 meetups a month going on in cities all over the world. And there was very little oversight for these meetups. These are just passionate indie hackers who wanted to get together with people in their own towns and like cities and share their stories. And they would run their meetups in all sorts of different ways. So I would fly around and just visit meetups randomly and everyone was completely unique. The people knew each other really well. And that to me was almost the most powerful part of indie hackers with these in-person connections. Nowadays we're doing groups on the website. So you can create your own little group of indie hackers and talk about particular topics. Like we have a no code group 
that is thriving. It's got like 17,000 members who are all really interested in no code. But even to, to me, that's too big. I was like, I want the no code group. I want there to be like a million, like little no code groups of people who are relying on each other. The real question is, okay, how do I do that at scale when we only have two developers <laughs> and not a lot right. of time to code stuff like that? I'll give my answer as well. So I think I, I really like the mission of increasing the GDP of the internet of Stripe. And I think it's very closely aligned with my personal mission as an investor, which is to build economic opportunity for people and increase the growth of the middle class and rebuild the middle class. To that end, I'd love to see indie hackers build more on-ramps to on entrepreneurship and not just give them education and resources and connection to people, but really right substantively give them like a roadmap of where to start, what tools to use, how can they mm. like how can they start creating income for themselves? What are all of the different sort of tools out there that they can use to build yeah. their own business? Because I think for a lot of people, if they're thinking about I want to start a business, like there's a huge chasm to be crossed of how do I get from where I am today to there. And so laying out all of the options, giving them maybe more of like a a step-by-step -step playbook of mm. start here, then do this, and here's how you sequence things could be really interesting. The other thing I would say is like health insurance. I feel like that is <laughs> yeah. actually one of the biggest factors preventing people from making the leap and leaving their jobs and becoming right. a freelancer or a solopreneur. So I don't know what to do there. Healthcare is expensive, yeah. but... I know very little about health insurance, but I do know it's a huge problem for a lot of people who want to get started Maybe that's another area where policy can make a really big difference. Definitely. In terms of the resources, there's so many indie hackers who are actually creating stuff like this. And maybe what I should do is just put together like a good sort of showcase of like tools by indie hackers for indie hackers. So a good example would be yeah. as an indie hacker, her name is Janelle. She's got a company called Newsletter OS. And she's like basically helping people who want to start paid newsletters. So she's created this cool, like calls it like a Notion dashboard where she's got like these sub Notion pages and you sign up and you just get a clone of it. And it's here's a page that helps you generate ideas. Oh, for I saw this. Yeah, yes. like everything you could possibly have. And not only is it a huge time saver, if you're going to start a newsletter, like you can like now have your own dashboard, but I think it's a pretty good propellant for giving you ideas that you wouldn't have otherwise and how to monetize and how to write a good newsletter and build a better newsletter. So it's like kind of this all-in-one roadmap for starting that kind of business. And a lot of indie hackers are using it. I think she got to can look her up right now in the indie hackers product directory. Yeah, like, it's so interesting. I think like the old version of this was like franchises and mm. allowing people to become franchisees. Yeah. And the new model is like giving people a set of tools such that they can start their own business online. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's cool because it helps her. This is her own business and it helps other people. So it's like a huge win-win. Yeah. She's got, she launched this a month ago in October. She's already at $7,000 a month in revenue. She's got 300 paying customers. Amazing. Building paid newsletters like on top of her sort of Notion dashboard. And there's a bunch of other indie hackers who are building tools like this too. So yeah, I could showcase yeah. these and get people, depending on what kind of business you want to build, here's the roadmap to do it. Totally. Totally. And that's the, basically she had to understand a lot about what it takes to create a good newsletter and a lot about Notion, but mm -hmm. this is, there's no code involved, right? No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, she could throw this up instantly. So if you're not a programmer, don't fret. <laughs> this is why the no code community <laughs> is so popular on Indie Hackers. I can see. Yeah. That's awesome. I feel like I, when I was in college, it was basically just learn to code. And now there's just so much value that could be created outside of that. Totally. Anyway, that's, that's a total tangent, but that's just really inspiring and cool. I'm having the moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm I think also, this is one of the I'm things that's going to get like those. Something here too, by the way. You heard it here first. I'm, I'm building something <laughs> on the side. Wow. Cool. You're an Indie Hacker, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Okay, so let's see. Maybe we can just do one more question before we wrap. Okay, so Jen asks, what are some emerging creator and indie hacker categories and mediums for creation, like writing, video, audio? And this actually ties to another question that I wanted to ask you. So maybe we'll combine them, which is like, during COVID, have you seen any sort of trends in the types of businesses that people are starting now versus Mm. before? Yeah, mediums for indie hackers. Writing, it seems to me to be the big one. I think it's interesting if you look at a lot of these platforms, especially the creator economy platforms, none of them have been that good at attracting tech founders. Tech founders are like the ones building these platforms, but they're not that many, like the tech scene on YouTube just isn't really that big. The tech scene on Twitch isn't that big. Everyone in tech is on Twitter. That's where the founders are. And Twitter doesn't give you any way to monetize your content. It just doesn't. Like you build up a big audience and it's up to you. Whereas like all the creator economy platforms, like the reason they're so inspiring is because people can figure out a way to make money. And so the biggest trend that I've seen this year has been indie hackers and founders, like like unbundling of Twitter, really. Like why give away all this information and all this know-how on Twitter when you can instead create your own Substack? And in the indie hackers community, I think people have healthy skepticism of platforms. And so a lot of the biggest indie hacker blogs and newsletters aren't even using Substack. They're taking advantage of like this excitement that Substack is generating for paid newsletters and they're launching on their own. So I talked to Drew Riley, a founder who basically spent like three years starting different tech companies and being an indie hacker. And then he created a newsletter called trends.vc earlier this year. I had him on the podcast a few months ago. He's making 20 grand a month. Last year he made close to 40 grand and he's just like alerting other founders, like the hottest trends. There's Josh Howarth from Exploding Topics, who's doing something similar. Kevin Conti runs a newsletter called Software Ideas. None of these newsletters are on Substack, but they're all people who've built Twitter audiences and translated that into paid newsletters. And they, they want to own kind of the entire stack. They want to own not only their subscribers, but also like the payments platform. So that they're more likely to use something like Ghost, where they can own the Stripe account than something like Substack, where it's hard to get off because you got to convince your subscribers to resubscribe after you leave. Totally. And I think that plays into the COVID question a little bit, which is, it's interesting that I haven't seen a lot of indie hackers taking advantage of the fact that, oh, there's COVID now. And so we're going to change what we're building because indie hackers are a little bit less concerned with building businesses that change the world and solve like these global problems. And then more concerned with like, how do I build a business that solves like my personal problems that improves my life and the lives of my customers and friends and coworkers? Let me start there. And then after I reach a certain size, then I'll think about tackling these bigger challenges. Totally. Right. That makes sense. It's been (laughs) such a pleasure to have you here, Cortland. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this discussion. If people want to follow up with you, learn more about what you're working on, what links should they go to? Yeah, just visit IndieHackers.com or uh, on your favorite podcast player, just search for Indie Hackers, subscribe to the podcast. That's really the best sort of entry point to figure out what this whole thing's about. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Nathan, for having me on. And Lee, whenever you get your Indie Hacker business off the ground, you have to come on the show and Tell us about it. Yes, I'd love to do that. Thank you so much again, Cortland, and have a great weekend and a great Thanksgiving, everyone. 